Hey there, and welcome back to Take One, the podcast that brings you just one definitive page of Talmud each day. And today's pages, Bava Kama 99 and 100, deliver a meditation on a very pressing subject. Expertise. Have a listen. The Gemara continues the discussion of an expert who erred, got something wrong, thereby causing a loss. It was stated, with regard to one who presents a dinar to a money changer to assess its value or authenticity, and the money changer declares it valid, and it is found to be bad, i.e. invalid, causing its owner a monetary loss, it is taught in Wan Baraita that if the money changer is an expert, he is exempt, while if he is an ordinary person, he is liable. And it is taught in another baraita that irrespective of whether he is an expert or whether he is an ordinary person, he is liable to pay for the owner's loss. What, in other words, should we do when an expert gets something very, very wrong? Should we be lenient because an expert is someone who offers their studious opinion and we have to be forgiving and let our experts, who are still human beings after all, make mistakes every now and then? Because really, if we don't, we would lose all faith in the very notion of experts and idea of expertise, and that's not great either. Or should we hold experts to the same exact standards as we do everybody else, saying, hey, buddy, I don't care that you have a PhD in coin assessing. If you mess things up, you're still liable to pay. It's much more than a mere Talmudic conundrum. It's a question that has become prominent in our own culture, which has weaponized the very idea of expertise. Often, you'd hear people bigfooting others in conversation, saying something like, well, I have a graduate degree in so-and-so-and-so, so my observation on this particular issue matters more than yours, which may have some grounding to it. Some of us are better informed and educated on certain topics than others, but which still is no way to have an informative and meaningful and productive conversation. Just as often, you would hear people take pleasure in denigrating the very idea of expertise, saying that degrees and appointments and track records are just a ploy to exert political or cultural power and influence and silence other people who disagree with you. So when I read the rabbis on this matter, you would be shocked, shocked to learn that they are rather inconclusive. I thought back to a conversation I had all the way back in 2017 on the Unorthodox podcast with Tom Nichols, the author of a book called the Death of Expertise, the Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. You may think Tom cuts experts too much slack, especially given how often the people he defends, including journalists, got things really kind of disastrously wrong in the years since our conversation. But his framing of the question is an interesting one, and the topic is as relevant now on the cusp of another contentious presidential election as it has ever been. Here then is Tom Nichols joining myself, Mark Oppenheimer, and Stephanie Butnick. Have a listen. Our Gentile this week is Tom Nichols. He's a professor at the U.S. Naval War College. He specializes in Russia and the former Soviet Union. He's written a bunch of books. His latest is called The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. He's also a five-time undefeated Jeopardy champion. Welcome, Tom. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. And has a, and has a very Gentile name. I mean, we never we always have to note, if you've got a guy named Tom Nichols... Yeah. Tom, you're you're not a Jew. Well, we picked it up at Ellis Island. I think <laughs> I think precisely on those criteria. So here here's here's my first question. Uh is a five-time Jeopardy champion. Is this like the equivalent of a four-star general? Like is there a hierarchy? 
well, in the Jeopardy community. There, well, uh, yes, I was actually one of the, t- until the 90s, until, uh, you know, they opened it up because in my day, this is where I hitch my pants up and say, now kids, in my day, <laughs> uh, they, made you, uh, they made you retire after five. Uh, oh, wow. But for a time, wait, they I, don't do that anymore. No, you can play until oh. you're you're gorged on your uh, list but of I winnings. But I thought Ken Jennings made that uh, problematic because he was there for eight months. No, they still do it. There's some guy on right now, I think, who's like rocking the house and taking the Brooklyn a bartender. Uh, I can't. Some Austin. Austin, yes. No, they they retired us. But f- until that period was done, I was one of the top 100 players of the game. Did you get leave from the military to go on the game show? I'm a civilian, um, and thank you for opening that door, because I actually am not in the military, and I should also add, nothing I say here reflects the views of the United States <laughs> the United government. States. Or Jeopardy. Uh, or, Jeopardy uh, or Harvard Extension School. Where right, because by teach. the way, the United States government these days enjoys such a pristine you know, reputation that really we, we wouldn't want to you know, tarnish well, it, uh, would we? <laughs> in, in all administrations, I always point out I don't speak for the government. Um, but uh, no, I was actually a young professor at Dartmouth College in the those days. And uh, a moment came after the game that took me down a peg for the rest of my life because uh, I was on Jeopardy. I won. I was also a young professor. I had my first teaching gig at an Ivy League school. I had my first book out. I thought I was just, you know, the cat's PJs. And one of my students walks up to me and he says, I saw you on Jeopardy. And I said, yeah, what'd you think? And he said, Professor Nichols, I had no idea you were so smart. (laughs) <laughs> it took you being on a game show yeah for me to i was really... like and i said to him i said you didn't think maybe the the you know the ivy teaching job or the book or nope. uh, and he just kind of shook his nope. head and he said you know what i mean so speaking nope. of, of being smart and smart people um you wrote an amazing book um which i think will prove it's one of these books that is going to prove to be kind of way more prescient than than you had hoped it would be because the sadly right because because the premise is terrifying right the premise is i mean it's called the death of expertise right like that's real intense living in a time in which not only do people not know anything they're they're sort of giddy about that fact so proud of it describe describe that horrible situation and, and how we got here well it's always been the case especially in american culture that people don't like eggheads um, you know, I, t- <laughs> I tell a story in the book. Th- this actually happened when I was teaching up at Dartmouth. I'm actually from Western Massachusetts, and I grew up in Whoa. a fat- uh, I- Where? Chicopee. Ah, I'm from Springfield. Get, Dude. Get out. I took my driver. I took my driver's test at the Chicopee DMV because it was easier. <laughs> because you guys uh, are not as smart. Yeah. <laughs> Basically. Uh, were, you, you were, were you on your way to the Kielbasa Festival? Absolutely. And then the Big E. And then the Big yeah. E. To rope some cows. All right. Back, back to death of expertise. Just had to have that moment um, there. Well, since you know Chicopee, my brother ran a bar there. And to say that it was a bar is really a compliment. It was more like a joint. <laughs> You know, and uh, so I used to hang out with my brother. I'd come down from Dartmouth and I'd drive down nice. and go see my family and I'd hang out in the bar. And one night I'd leave and uh, a guy in the bar turns to my brother and he says, so uh, your brother's a professor, huh? And my brother says, yeah. And he says, well, seems like a good guy anyway. <laughs> now, that's really common. That's a part. That's a normal part of American culture. This distrust of intellectuals and pinheads. That's actually even a positive part of our culture because we, you know, we don't come from Europe. We don't call people hair doctor, professor and all that, that academic rank stuff. On the other hand, what's happened now is that people are positively um, not just distrustful of experts, but believe they're smarter than experts. In other words, there's this incredible injection of narcissism into this now that says, you're not the boss of me. 
I'm smart enough to know about vaccines. I can read a medical journal article, uh, mm-hmm. you know, and know whether or not this is real. And and it's and it's bleeding down into everything. I spoke to when I wrote the book. I was talking to doctors, teachers, uh, engineers, you name it. But I was also talking to people like photographers and electricians and plumbers who who all said, "Oh my God, if I have one more guy." You know, while I'm wiring a house, standing over me saying, so uh, what are you using there? Uh, you know, 220, 221, you know, the Mr. Mom, right? 221, whatever it takes. <laughs> is that the internet? Is that the sole yeah, It's YouTube, right? It's YouTube well, in the book, it's YouTube videos. In the book, I attribute it to several things, all of which are part of this underlying growth of narcissism in American society. Uh, but the other influences are, uh, yes, the internet, and I'll talk about that in a second, because everybody, that's the go-to, everybody says, well, it's the internet, but it's not. This predates the internet, uh, I would say, going back to the 70s and the 80s. One is education. We now have a very therapeutic model of education, which is, we don't really care whether the students are learning critical thinking and, you know, kind of going through their paces to become lifelong learners. We care about whether they're happy. We care about whether they're feeling fulfilled. <laughs> There's no such thing as a really wrong oh answer. I mean, let's face it. The most common grade in American universities is an A. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, that's, you know, I mean, Lake Wobegon is one thing. Lake, what the hell is going on yeah. is a totally another. I mean, the world is not full of A students. Um, the media pay uh, play a big part in this because now the media are all segmented. You can spend all day getting your news and never encounter a view you disagree with. You can go anywhere. You don't read a newspaper anymore, right? I actually made the mistake. I teach undergraduates at night, and I made I made reference to an above the fold story in the newspaper, and the students all looked at me, <laughs> and I that? said, "Above the above what? the what? Is that a and, website?" <laughs> and, I, and I said, uh, "Well, okay. There was once a time when papers were made of trees, um, and uh, everything in air quotes. I went newspapers, <laughs> newspaper, were made trees, news paper, uh, <laughs> printed with lasers, oh, and uh, you know." Uh, so they didn't really understand that a newspaper has a way of signaling what's important to you. And what, what you realize is that people don't read a newspaper. They search for stuff they already want to hear about. They don't, uh, it's like reading a book by starting with the index and seeing if your name's in it, which I've never done, by the way. No, none of us (laughs) has ever done that. Yeah. Uh, and finally, of course, the internet. Then, then it really is the internet because it's the magic answer box that everybody carries in their pocket that produces the illusion of being informed, actually knowing something. Yes. Right. Now, in, in in the book, one of the things that that I that I liked a lot about it is that y- you never conflate, you know, credentials with actual expertise, mm-hmm. and and it seems to be a distinction that many fail to make. So, h- how do we get to real expertise if so much of our educational system is? not necessarily geared towards it. Who are the classes that we still trust? How do we get that infrastructure up again? Well, you know, part of the problem about credentials is that people now both resent them uh, and don't take them seriously. Um, Someone said, well, you think you're smart because you have a PhD. Uh, and I'm like, well, yeah, I think, you know, I think that's a certain. But on the other hand, then the next comeback is, well, you know, a lot of people have PhDs. Well, I can't deny that either right. anymore. Um, this democratization of education has been lethal because it's brought, um, it's it's caused degree inflation. That you know, bachelor's degrees in a lot of schools, and I, I, I always make it a point to say, I think American education is still the best in the world. Um, college, American universities are still the best, but. 
there is a huge stratum of American universities that are doing nothing but filling in as replacement high schools now. Yeah. Uh, which means that to, in order to show some college level achievement, people get master's degrees. Uh, and there's been a proliferation of that. And of course, all this is very expensive and it's very time consuming and it means people defer growing up and getting married and having children and adulting. Um, and I think it's just an, <clears throat> it's needless. Uh, so uh, how do you replace that infrastructure? Well, part of it is longevity. I think, um, you know, pe expertise. I actually talk in the book about what constitutes an expert. Uh, you know, dilettantes don't last very long in any field. Uh, there's more than just credentialing. There's peer Including review. maybe, you know, being president. But we'll talk about that in a moment. Well, you know, one thing that the president and others, like the Brexiteers, have done is to conflate the word expert with the word elite, which is wrong. Um, I was an advisor to a U.S. senator some years ago. I was an expert. He was elite. Yeah. I was not the decision maker. So... Uh, I, I think part of it is to reestablish this notion that uh, there are there are things that are true, there are things that are false. There are areas that require expertise that you should rely on other people for, but that doesn't. But we have to get our egos out of the way because I think partly what what a lot of this rejection of expertise boils down to is a national temper tantrum of saying you're not the boss of me. That when a doctor says, "Look, you got to you know you got to vaccinate your kid because." We don't want to have whooping cough come back. And parents say, I don't like needles. You're not the boss of me. Uh, it, you know, it's, um, it really is a kind of, again, uh, rooted in an excessive, and this is where it comes into contact with democracy, with a radical notion of democracy that is really uh, mobocracy rather than kind of the considered and thoughtful republic upon which the American experiment was founded. So I think this has really scrambled the partisan political situation, because there's really two parties now. There's the party of people who accept facts, and then there's kind of everybody else. And that that party of everybody else, as much as people want to associate it with Trumpism, uh, that really does cut across parties as well. I mean, there are people on the left where I have these completely hallucinatory uh, discussions about things where, you know, again, it's, well, what I believe is what I believe. So I, I actually think the new cleavage in America is kind of between knowers and wishers or knowers and believers rather than believers. left and right. Belie yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but what about, you know, sometimes you look at groups of experts and as much as I kind of want to uh, assign myself to one of these groups, um, you look at groups of experts and you see that they're just as susceptible as anyone else to these kind of, you know, bouts of group thing to yes. like really, really short sightedness. You saw this with people prognosticating Brexit, prognosticating the election and being, you know, 100 percent wrong just because kind of like some sort of ideological, you know, willful blindness. How, how do we how do we explain that and how do we treat that? Well, experts, there's a whole chapter in the book called When Experts Are Wrong. Uh, including not just when they are wrong out of good faith, but when they are, oh, I don't know, what's the word I'm looking for? Lying? Yeah. Uh, fraud? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, um, you know, that's always a hazard. You you could run into a doctor who's going to kill you. Uh, you could run into a dentist who's going to disfigure you. You could run across a lawyer who's going to put you in jail. Uh, but the but the as I tell people, experts aren't always right. They're just more likely to be right than you are. <laughs> and if they're wrong, they're more capable of learning from being wrong. Um, I think one problem here is, of course, the public 
judges us on predictive ability, which is the weakest part of any sort of right. uh, expertise. I mean, it's we're explainers. Now, scientists say, no, we have to do experiments to predict. But still, if you could predict every experiment, you wouldn't run them because you learn from when they fail. Uh, the other thing, and, and I'll put in one last plug for experts here, is to say uh, people treat expert failure like plane crashes. They're spectacular. It terrifies them. They focus on it to, you know, uh, I, in the book, I take that bit from Rain Man, the movie Rain Man, mm -hmm. where the autistic character won't fly because he can remember every single crash that ever happened. Right. But people don't remember billions and billions and billions of miles safely traveled. The same people who say, I, you know, the pilot could be drunk or the pilot could be stupid and pilots don't know what they're doing are, are saying that while they're texting while driving. Right. Yeah. <laughs> You know, because they have well, no smart. sense of risk because I'm smart right. and I'm in control. Exactly. So, so Tom, you came with a, a gentile question for us. Mm -hmm. um, the, uh, the, the question I had, uh, because I, I had to think about this now, you know, especially if you live in the Northeast, well, do you want to ask about Jewish food? No, I've eaten plenty of it. Uh, you know, but the one question I always had is about the way that groups treat each other in an undifferentiated way. So, you know, Jews are like this, Christians are like that, Gentiles are like this. So my question was, is there a group with whom Jews outside of Judaism or either ethnically or religiously feel more comfortable. Is there a Gentile group who say, these are guys, these are the guys we like to hang out with. And the example I, I brought up when talking about it with your producer was, uh, I'm Greek Orthodox. People are always surprised to find out. They say, well, who's most like you in the world? The Catholics, right? And we say, no. Yeah. We have a lot of, we have a lot of beefs with the Catholics. Um, the Anglicans, yeah. which is a really strange thing. No one ever thinks to put the Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, and the Anglicans together, but there's actually a lot of history. The greatest history of the Orthodox Church was written by an Anglican convert uh, back in the 20th century. So uh, that kind of sparked the, the question in my head. Is there an equivalent group w outside of your community where you'd say, we're very comfortable with that group? Would that's they a, get us? That's a great question. I'll, Such I'll, a good question. I'll take yeah. a first stab. Yep. Uh, for me, it's Armenians. Um, uh. For whom I make almost no differentiation. I mean, the, uh, upon my first contact with Armenians, like, oh my God, <laughs> hi, Mishpocha, you know, hi, family. It's like, oh, you have a Holocaust, you're small and tribal, and you make good brandy. <laughs> like, hey, like, we're brothers. For me, I mean, personally, it's so funny. Like you say, you're Greek Orthodox. I have a best friend from college who is Greek Orthodox, and I've always found it very easy because, like, the cultural aspect is very similar. So for me, I'm like, yeah, I get it. You got, you know, you have your special name for your grandmother. You, like, have a specific type of food you eat. Like, to me, I could more seamlessly— We're Mediterranean. Yeah, like, right. yeah, you know. And so in addition to Irene, my cousin married a Greek woman who I love so much, and it feels like—I don't know, for me— the 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 religions that have cultural aspects sort of bound up in them, um, I find very sort of it's easier as opposed to Catholicism, which to me I'm like, I don't I don't get like it's hard to find an inroad there because well it is true Greek Orthodoxy I mean it, it's uh, although you know it's interesting sometimes when I'm a, speaking to um, European audiences I point out that I'm Eastern Orthodox and they say well you're a Russian I said no the Orthodox Church in Armenians you know others uh, but it is true that the that Greek Orthodoxy I I had a um, uh, when I was in college, I had a very serious relationship with a young Jewish lady. Uh, she came to church with me one time and, you know, we were doing the smells and the bells and the droning and the chanting. She leans over halfway through the service and says, sounds like my guys. Uh, <laughs> right. And I said, yeah, she was every bit know, as I said, we, we stole it from somewhere, <laughs> you know. 
Um, uh, you know, it's, first of all, I have to say to to Stephanie, you know, whose who's dear friend Irene, we all know. I mean, Irene is basically Jewish. I mean, oh, yeah, you, couldn't, Jewish. You, couldn't, you couldn't be more right. I mean, she reads as Jewish and, you know, I've got good Judar. And if I met her, you know, uh, without, you know, knowing, um, and I, that's, of course, the highest of compliments. Um, but, I mean, I, I hate to sound like a broken record, but I, my mind did go to the Greeks. And I've never had personally um, any close – I mean, I'm sure I've had friends with some Greek ancestry, but, but, none but of your best it's my brother. It, none of my best friends were Greek, but my brother in college, his two of his five best friends, I would say, were Anthony Philippakis and Anthony Kyriakakis. And um, you made and, that up. And, <laughs> no, no, <laughs> in a I random re- name generator right now. <laughs> I really. Here's the thing, guys. I really didn't. <laughs> like it was, you know, Dan. Dan hung with the Anthony's a lot, and. Um, you know, and one of them was much more his his family is much closer to to immigration to Greece than the other whose family I think had been here longer. But um, you know, I hung with those guys a lot, and and I so it's something I thought about in the years thereafter. It just kind of you know I, I had that question in my own mind, and you know you notice there, there are first of all you're talking about a people who. Even the ones who are ostensibly religious are often pretty funny and casual about it. There's not a kind of oh, reverence yeah. for the clergy that you'll see in some in some traditions. Um, it was a shock to uh, me to read Zorba the Greek, and uh, you know, as kind of part of my own cultural education, and realize that. You know, wow, Greeks in America are a lot more pious than, yeah. you know, yeah. Greeks. <laughs> so that's number one. Number two, intense pressure to marry within within the faith. Oh. And it's really, it's really more within the culture. I mean, Greek Americans, even ones who aren't particularly church-going, expect their kids will ma- marry fellow Greek Americans very often, which is really interesting. My, my um, father put quite – interestingly enough, my father – whose first marriage was to a Polish-American woman, uh, and then he married my mother years later, who is Irish-American, but she converted to Orthodoxy, Greek Orthodoxy. Uh, And yet there was intense pressure from my father to marry a a Greek woman. And I finally just turned to her and I said, like you did twice? (laughs) And and I said, like my brother who married the Irish girl did or my other brother who married the Protestant did? And finally he he just was quiet for a moment. He said, you know, just because the rest of us were stupid doesn't mean you have to be. (laughs) So did you? Yeah. I've been married twice and in neither case. So I, ah, see, that was your mistake. That was, uh, but you know. <laughs> For the third time, you need a Greek woman, Tom. Yeah, well, and you know, we do accept uh, two divorces within the Greek church. So I right. still got one. <laughs> so wait, when you were dating the Jewish girl, was there like, this is what we get to ask Gentiles, like what people really think of Jews. Like was were your parents, was there like a pressure, like, oh, don't date a Jewish girl. Do um, date a Jewish girl. But you know, here, here's the inter- the interesting moment because it was an intersection with Greeks. Now, this was not like dating wasps, right? You know, or coming from a wasp family, it was like, well, you know, not our people, right. the Hebrews, yeah. you know, that kind of thing. Uh, this was actually, my mother loved her, but said, she's a wonderful girl. She's beautiful. She's, she's, you clearly love her. I just hope you don't marry her. Because, not because she was Jewish, but because I was Greek Orthodox. Right. It was the pressure to marry within, it, you know, it. And of course, her family, her grandmother used to say, he's a nice Greek boy. When does he convert? (laughs) And everybody was really rooting for all, for both of us to convert on both sides because nobody had an innate, I mean, it was actually a very heartbreaking situation because there was no innate uh, rejection from either side. The Jewish family did not reject the Greek boy. The Greek family did not reject the the, uh, Jewish girl. But it was which one of you will convert because the religious you know line has to go on, and we, 
you know, eventually it just didn't work. And, and my priest, who's a wonderful guy since retired, um, I think by the standards of Greek Orthodox, a very liberal, very forward-looking priest, he, when he found out that was over, he said, he just kind of went... <laughs> you know, like, okay, so now I don't have to figure out what to do right. about this. Crisis averted. Yes, crisis averted. Exactly. <laughs> and remember that, you know, the most famous Greek Orthodox politician in America is technically not in communion with the church because he's married to a Jewish woman. Mike Michael Dukakis. Dukakis. Yeah. Michael Dukakis. Absolutely. Tom, thank you so much uh, for being here. Tom's latest book is The Death of Expertise, The Campaign Against Established Knowledge and Why It Matters. Thank you so much. Wonderful to be with you. This has been Take One. If you enjoy the show, and I hope that you do, then you are really going to love the new book just published by me. It's called How the Talmud Can Change Your Life, Surprisingly Modern Advice from a Very Old Book. You can order it now at your local bookstore or directly from the publisher through the link in this here podcast description or through that big online store whose logo is, you know, a smile. As always, please go rate and review Take One on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. You could get your Take One t-shirts and mugs and other swag at tabletstudios.com and you could subscribe to our weekly newsletter at tabletm.ag slash take one newsletter. Take One is a Tablet Studios production. The show is hosted by me, Leah Leibowitz, and is produced and edited by Daron Ruskay, Quinn Waller, and Ellie Blyer. Our team also includes Stephanie Butnick, Josh Cross, Robert Scaramucci, Courtney Hazlett, and Tanya Singer. For more information, go to tabletmag.com slash takeone or email us at takeone at tabletmag.com. I hope we have made your day a little more Talmudic.